This is an ABC podcast. What's the duck at abc.net.au? You got mail. The ducky email's starting to overflow, actually, and I do love all your strange what the actual duck moments. But a couple of weeks back, I started to see a theme emerging that I just couldn't ignore. There's a big blue gum and I saw a deep gouge out of the bark of the tree. It was as if the artist formerly known as Prince had sort of come and carved his love symbol into my tree overnight. If it was the 1990s, I would have probably called Agent Scully or, if I was feeling desperate, Agent Mulder. But in the current era, I'm turning to What the Duck. Trees and X-File Mysteries. Anne Jones with you, and this is What the Duck, produced by ABC Science. And you might have heard that we're running a poll at the moment for Australia's favourite tree. You get to vote on which tree will reign supreme over at abc.net.au slash trees. And in this episode, we're going to attempt to get to the bottom of some of those audience tree mysteries. Sue Johnson is in southeast Queensland, and she noticed that the trees on her daughter's block appear to be crying. Me too, Sue. They appear quite healthy. There are blobs of white froth here and there on the branches, and the trees continuously weep water like rain. From a distance, the constant dripping is quite obvious, clear like water, rather odd under a clear blue sky. Susan's trees are weeping, literally, dripping moisture even when there hasn't been rain. So what could possibly be going on? Are they sad? Let's call in Dr Russell Barrett, research scientist at the Australian Botanic Gardens and the National Herbarium of New South Wales. That it's probably a kind of spittlebug. Um, it's probably a, a group that are known as frog hoppers. You know, I have heard of the spittle bugs before, but I never knew that their adult form was called uh, frog bug. What did you call them? Frog? Yeah, frog hoppers. Frog hoppers. Guess what? I'm going to be going to Google now for the rest of the afternoon. Oh my God. Magical creature alert. A frog hopper bug puts human long jumpers to shame. They can jump several times their own body length and height, and they use that to jump from plant to plant. But instead of having some sort of dreary childhood at Little Aths, the juvenile frog hoppers are called spittle bugs. They produce a bubbly sort of substance, like they're at a turn of the millennium foam party. Are you ready? Yeah. Here we go. Russell isn't alone in thinking spittlebugs. I suspect spittlebugs. Maya Blash thinks so too. She's an arborist who spends a lot of time climbing around up close with whatever's going on in tree canopies in Canberra. So the froth that they're seeing is an exudate from the insect. So why though? What's going on? They're jumpy adults, but frothy young ones. Here's Russell and Maya. Frog hopping bugs are fairly robust, they can hop away and they can jump, but the larvae are quite soft, they're quite vulnerable. So what they're doing is they're sapping on the suck, sorry, sucking on the sap. (laughs) Oh, thank God, it's not only me that says things like that. Sucking on the sap and drawing out both water and nutrients from the gums. So the the froth that they're seeing is an exudate from the insects that it's pooping out because it's in excess 
to its needs. In doing so, they're creating this froth around them, which is quite bitter in taste, and that's giving their sort of fairly exposed and um, fragile bodies protection both from predators and from drying out. So they're fairly thin-skinned, they're exposed up there in these trees with high wind and high sun. And by creating this froth around them, they're creating sort of their own cocoon. Predators can't see them within the froth. And it's also quite possible that they're sort of spitting out the bits they don't want from the sap they're sucking at the same time. And so is the dripping. It's literally dripping down onto them. And I think because we've had so much water, the trees are like pumped full of water at the moment, right? And the insects are basically just responding and just taking full advantage. So the little larvae, caterpillary type things, are making their own protective bubble bath so that they're protected from the elements and also from predation. But what are the other potential causes of the weeping tree? I mean, apart from a sign from God like the burning bush or something. Other options, if you're looking at this from a distance, is you might actually have a large concentration of manna accumulating on either leaves or the base of leaves. Manna is a sweet, sticky sort of substance that appears on eucalypts after an insect has attacked them. And so from a distance, a big bunch of manna is going to look like a foamy substance up on the, the leaves and the branches. It's called a manna, the same manna that's talked about in biblical times. Oh, shit, it is a biblical story. But again, because it's insects drawing out sap, if you've got high concentrations, you can sort of have glistening and dripping sap mixed in with these white scales created by these insects. Yes, you can have tens of thousands of these things on a gum tree, but the scale at which they're drawing sap out compared to the volume of fluid that's going through a gum tree at any one point is actually relatively small, so it's actually rare that these kinds of insects would actually cause much damage to a gum tree. Mm, they'd have to be in it's sort of absolute plague proportions. Oh, God, again with the Bible references. I wouldn't rule out being peed on by cicadas either, by the way, though I'm pretty sure it wasn't the Bible where I saw that one. Okay, back to the inbox. So this person wrote in and... My name's Rob Keogh. That's him. And basically, his idea was that trees manipulate their environment to give themselves a competitive advantage. And the first species he mentioned was the gimlet. The most beautiful tree in the great western woodlands of the eastern goldfields of Western Australia. And he says it sterilises the soil with tannins from its bark. Gimlets protect themselves from competition, particularly from uh, their own seed, in a number of ways. Like so many eucalypts, their bark and leaf, when deposited on the soil, deliver tannins and other things that make the soil inhospitable to the generation of competitors. Thanks, Rob. And it's an interesting idea, isn't it, that the gimlet would poison its own seedlings. But I'm not a tree expert, so I've had to recruit in some help. My name is Hans Lombers. I am an emeritus professor at the University of Western Australia. So what's the reaction of Professor Lambers? There is very little work done on Gimlet, actually, but there is work done on a tree that grows in a very similar environment, and that is Eucalyptus wandu, or wandu. People have actually tried to work out, does it really 
affect the soil and its competitors. And the evidence is, well, it's not convincing by any way. But what this tree actually does do is suck out a lot of the water from the environment. And not only one do does that, but also salmon gum, for example, uh, where people have told a very similar story that nasty chemicals from the trees will actually affect the neighbors. Well, what they really do is they suck so much water out of the soil, they strongly compete with everything that wants to grow under it. So there's a nice bit of research where they actually chop down one of those old salmon gums and all these little seedlings, including the seedlings of the salmon gum, that refused to grow. They took off like a bat out of hell after <laughs> the mother plant had disappeared. So all those chemicals were still there, but all of a sudden the competition for water was no longer there. So that was the real story. There's quite often an element of, of truth in it. That's why I said, well, he did hear the bell ring, but doesn't quite know what the clapper hangs. <laughs> There's more to that story too, because when you look at the mulga tree, there's research that goes back to the 1960s on it. Now, look, apart from being the name of a character from a Banjo Patterson poem, mulga is a type of acacia that loves to live in arid areas in Australia. It's got thin, spiky, light-coloured leaves and little tube-like, waterly sort of flowers. What these plants actually do in the desert is they, they direct the water from the leaves to the stem, the branches to the stem, and then it actually infiltrates close to the stem. As if they've got a whole guttering system built in that channels the water towards their own roots. So they do modify their own environment. There's no two ways about that. And if you go further away from the Melgas, well, it's really very dry and the water, the rainwater doesn't penetrate there, but it all infiltrates close to the Melga. That's where it is moist, so yeah, they do affect their own environment. But once they grow there, that's also where the litter accumulates. And when the wind blows over the nutrient-poor deserts, all the dust, all the debris, all the rubbish gets collected close to those, those melga trees. And somebody actually once called that the reverse Robin Hood principle, because our deserts are pretty nutrient poor. The little bit of nutrients that there is, they actually accumulate it. So that's taking away from the poor and giving to the rich. So it's the reverse Robin Hood principle. <laughs> it's sort of gathering its own little compost pile. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But for the Eucalyptus salubris you were talking about, the gimlet, I have not been able to find any information. So, yes, there is a story there, but not for that particular species as far as we know. So it's a fascinating story, but we still don't know much about the gimlets, Rob. When I asked Professor Lambers if there were any trees practising chemical warfare like you described, he was a bit stumped. Excuse the pun. OK, going back to the inbox, because we've got time for one more question. Yeah, this is a good one. Hello there. My name's Nari. I'm calling from Dark Drum Country on the New South Wales Central Coast. And just outside my carport, there's a big blue gum that I walk past every day. And a couple of years ago, I was wandering past it and I saw a deep gouge out of the bark of the tree. It was as if the artist formerly known as Prince had sort of come and carved his love symbol into my tree overnight. Uh, but I knew it couldn't be him. I mean, it could have been. So I did wonder, was it animal? 
Was it vegetable? Was it mineral? Had a possum climbed up a tree and clawed it? Or was there some alternate explanation? A few months later, uh, I looked at this gouge, which had perhaps started to heal already, but uh, to my shock and awe, there was a muddy protuberance coming out of this gouge in the tree as if something or someone had hatched. When I look at it now, a couple of years on, the scar in the tree is completely healed except for kind of like a, a scar you would see on a person. So like a, a straight line where the bark has healed itself, which is amazing. If it was the 1990s, I would have probably called Agent Scully or if I was feeling desperate, Agent Mulder. But in the current era, I'm turning to what the duck. Same, same, really. I'd be really fascinated to find out what is this thing. Thanks, bye. Now, I almost called in Agent Mulder Meldrum for this print size mystery, but instead, I think we need to call in some heavy hitters in the tree healing department. Because in the photos that Nari sent in, one was with the tree with a sort of burst in its bark as if it was an exit wound from a bullet. And then there's a little tube that comes out of it in the next one, like the alien comes out of Sigourney Weaver. And then it's all sealed over in the next picture. Belinda Medlin is from the Hawkesbury Institute of Environment at Western Sydney University. So I have a great colleague who's an entomologist, uh, Marcus Regal. And we had a close look, but the thing that's coming out of the thing is actually the pupa for a longer corn beetle. So they've gotten, I think, the action shot of a borer exiting the tree. Maya the arborist again. And then the tree sealing over the wound created by that borer, which is phenomenal. So they're beetles that the larvae grow underneath the bark of the tree. And then when they're ready to emerge, those pupa come out and the beetle comes out and goes off and finds a mate and starts all over again. I don't think I've like seen the borer exit before the tree like that. I've definitely seen the traces of it on the trunk afterwards when the tree's sealed itself over. But I think that's what's happened there. That particular species is a bullseye borer. <laughs> there are a number of other types of borers. At the moment, for example, in the Snowy Mountains, there's a big outbreak of this kind of borer that um, is taking out a lot of the snow gums. And actually, I've seen the snow gum dieback situation and you can actually watch it along with me on the tally in a two-part series that I've made with the ABC Catalyst crew and Paul West, you know, the River Cottage bloke. It's called Australia's Favourite Tree. You can see these programs on the 16th and the 23rd of August on the tally or you can go to ABC iView and have a squeeze at any time you like. But anyway, back to the borers. So sometimes we see um, entry holes, but most often we see exit holes. So the borers shoot its way out of the wood and into the free world. <laughs> the bits on them, you know, they're chewing through wood. So the pincers on them are incredible. And they're usually wider than their bodies, so they are alien-looking little things. I guessed that it might have been a beetle, but I didn't guess that about it being the sort of attempts of the tree to sort of seal the wound or seal the mark. So can you explain that a little bit more, what you think might be happening? Well, there's a tree myth worth busting right there. Yeah. 
just in pedanticism of yeah. language, I guess. Trees don't heal, they seal. Okay, it does sound a bit pedantic, but also... That is the reason I love speaking with people who are experts. No one is too cool to be schooled. A tree has a slightly different philosophy than a human body does because it's it's all about growing new stuff. So, you know, if you lose a leaf or you lose a branch, you're not trying to regrow that leaf or that branch. You can just grow a new one if you're a tree. So the trees, it's always growing. It's always growing new leaves. It's always growing new wood. It's always growing new bark. So what it can do is just if something gets attacked or damaged, it can just grow over that. So if there's a wound in the side of the tree, the tree can kind of grow over the top of it. And it looks like it's healed, but what it's done is grown over the top. If you prune a branch off, for instance, or in this case, something's come through the tree, you'll see it rolling over. And sometimes they look like donuts. And that's because the cells are reproducing in that manner, so it's under ring tension. So when it's the cells are sealing over, they're literally growing towards each other oh. until they start to touch. So it's growing outwards and towards each other at the same time. There's some amazing cases. You do see this from time to time where the tree bark will grow over something that's been put onto a tree. So, for example, there's a walk near where I live down to Fairy Dell in Springwood where there used to be a sign nailed to the side of the tree saying this way down to Fairy Dell or something. The tree's grown over it. And so you can still see where the sign was, but it's now covered in bark. So the trees are growing their bark as a, you know, preventative mechanism. It's really about trying to make sure that the bark's thick enough and sturdy enough to stop those insects getting in. So beginner's question then, does bark continue to grow and grow and grow in layers and push out or like throughout the tree's lifetime? Yes. Ah. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Trees are amazing things. You look at the trunks and you think that that's all alive but it's not all alive. The inside of a tree is mostly dead wood and the only bit that's alive is the bit that's around it. So crazy. So that wood sort of acts like the structure or like a sort of skeleton, does it, and the the living tree grows up and around and taller and wider. Exactly. If you cross-section a tree, you can see old pruning wounds quite often. So it's just growing over and over and over and over again. And so that prince symbol will be inside Mm -hmm. that tree for as long as that tree exists. That's correct. That's pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And you know what else is cool? Voting for Australia's favourite tree in our poll. There are so many to choose from. Woolly butts. Boabs, uh, mountain ash and snow gu- I mean, there's three rounds of voting for Australia's favourite tree and I thought I'd show off because the first person that I actually got to talk about their favourite tree is Millie Ross. Yes, Gardening Australia's Millie. I mean, come on. G'day, my name is Millie Ross. 
And as you'd expect of a plant person, she's got a really, really well-thought-out answer. It might be different tomorrow, but today I am choosing Casuarina Cunninghamiana, also known as the River Oak. The sound of the wind through their foliage is truly one of the most beautiful things you can hear. And they're also really important plants in the landscape for other species. Underground, they have relationships with bacteria that help them to fix nitrogen. They have relationships with moss species as food plants. And of course, the birds love those incredible seed pods. So like so many species, I think they are so complex and we never give them the attention they need. But hopefully in this poll, my river oak will get a Guernsey. Casuarina Cunninghamiana. Millie Ross says vote one river oak. It's Tim Entwistle here. But and then I'm there's Professor Tim Entwistle, who, along with Millie, was on the committee to choose the shortlist for Australia's favourite tree. Here and I'm in Melbourne at the Royal Botanic Gardens, Victoria, staring across many, many trees. My favourite tree started very clearly as the bunya pine. But the more I talk about this, I'm changing. So I've gone through... Morton Bay Fig, Mountain Ash, I think is just an amazing tree. But you know what, I, I keep coming back to river red gums. They're all over Australia, so they're common as muck, but each one is different. Each has its own shape and design and sort of bends and weaknesses, almost illnesses. They're like, they're like human beings. They, they carry their history along with them. So look, right now, if I had to be asked, It'll be the river red gum. But when I put the call out to send in your best argument for your favourite tree, most of the recordings were like this one from Emma. Dr Ann Jones, this is way too hard. And then there were lots of people who were up in arms because their favourite tree wasn't on the shortlist. Plumbing salmon gums, Anne. Where are the salmon gums? Where's the tree that glows as beautiful and orange as the very orange red dirt of Australia? Where are the salmon gums on the list, Anne? Sorry, Holly. I wasn't involved in the pre-selection of candidates, but your level of angst against the prospective candidates has been noted. Australia's favourite tree is missing the best tree of all. Eucalyptus sideroxylon or mugger ironbark. It has the most stunning dark bark with tinges of rust in the sunlight. Bats, birds and bees absolutely adore the flowers. What's not to love about it? Come on, guys. It's absolutely the best tree there is. Sorry, Kim, though I have to say it makes a nice change from the normal sorts of complaints we get at the ABC. And as you all know, the ABC prides itself on avoiding political bias. But then along came Tom. I could tell you what my favourite tree is but it's much more fun to tell you what my least favourite tree is. And that is mountain ash, also known as eucalyptus regnans. I'm a committed Republican, so it's probably no surprise that I don't like this ruling monarch of the forest, which is where the Latin name regnans derives from, owing to mountain ash's tendency to tower over the forest, reaching heights of more than 90 metres. I guess you could say I'm a champion of the underdog, or in this instance, the understory. I don't doubt that mountain ash is a beautiful tree, but my beef with it is simple. Because it is tall, it simply gets too much attention. Let me ask you this. When you go to a city, is the best building in town the tallest one? Of course not. When it comes to architecture, we end up appreciating the ornate, the decorative, the innovative, and those unique buildings which bring real character to our cities. After standing on top of a tall building, you realize them for what they really are. Visually impressive, sure, 
but ultimately big dumb vanity projects which draw way too much time and attention. The same goes for mountain ash, a big dumb tree that refuses to grow anywhere but the most optimal places. Even more stupidly, it can't re-sprout, so it dies and withers away after a fire that any other eucalypt would just simply shrug off. Most of all, its dominance casts a shadow across all the other little-known and special trees which call Australia home, obscuring them from the appreciation they deserve. Give me the deep furrows of ironbark, the creamy ribbons of a snowgum, the beautiful deep dark timber of the blackwood, or even the blindingly bright flowers of a red flowering gum any day. Just not a big, boring tall tree. Please address your tree pole concerns to Ida Buttrose, Queen of the Trees, at your ABC. And if you want your opinions back, everyone, make sure to send them in with a stamped self-addressed envelope. Made out of recycled paper, of course. Get angry, get even. Make your vote count and get over to abc.net.au slash trees. And remember to lurk around on ABC television on Tuesday the 16th and the 23rd for an adventure program where I literally go searching for good trees. What the Duck is an ABC Science production. I'm Anne Jones and I produce the program along with Patria Ladgrove with an eye on the script from Joel Werner. The program is produced mostly on the land of the Wadawurrung and Ghana people with the help of experts from all over the continent. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.